When I was a kid, my grandmother would tell me stories. Some were nice stories meant to help me relax before bed. Other stories weren't so nice. If I asked, Grandma would tell me a scary story every once in a while. Monsters hiding in the woods, houses that ate people, radio stations that corrupted a person's brain, sea creatures lurking below the waves. The one that stuck with me, though, was about the air people, as she called them. It was different than other stories that she told. Instead of telling it like a story you'd read from a book, she told it to me as if she experienced it herself. She told me that when she was younger, there was a three-week period where countless people in her town disappeared. Just flat-out vanished. Husbands or wives would wake up in the morning and their significant other simply wasn't there. Parents would be waiting for their kids to come home from school and they never would. They were all just gone. Like they'd been taken. There was never any explanation, and the police were never able to uncover any evidence. But my grandmother said that a week before the disappearances started happening, there was a big storm. Clouds rolled in, almost out of nowhere. Thunder rocked the neighborhood. Lightning illuminated the sky. And she said that when she looked up into the sky that night, in the flashes of lightning, she could have sworn she saw what she then called the air people. Humanoid figures flying in the air with wings like a bat. No one believed her, of course. And she was never able to find a direct connection between the air people and the disappearances. Still, she told me she never forgot what she saw. I've been thinking of that story a lot recently, even though it's been many, many years. Mainly because a few days ago a storm hit my town. A bad one. And in the flashes of lightning, I could have sworn I saw human-like figures being illuminated in the clouds. Human-like figures with the wings of bats. I wonder what will happen in the next few weeks. Deborah lived a quiet life. In a quiet town, at the end of a quiet street. She had nice neighbors and a very acceptable life. She worked during the day and wound down with a good book and a glass of wine at night. Things were good, and then she received the first phone call on September 12th. Deborah? The caller asked hurriedly. It was a woman, Deborah could tell that much, but the static on the line made it difficult to perceive anything else. Yes, this is she. What's the date? The caller interrupted. Uh, September 12th? The line immediately went dead. A prank, was her first thought. The evolution of, is your refrigerator running? Still, something about the call was strangely alarming to her. She received the next call a few days later. Deborah. Look, I don't know who this is or what kind of prank you think you're playing. What is the date, Deborah? Please stop calling me, Deborah said loudly into the phone. Or I'll call the police and have your number traced. Deborah hung up. She was beginning to panic a little. 
The urgency in the voice on the other end of the line seemed genuine. Did this person not own a calendar? What was wrong with them? She was getting ready for bed a few nights later when she received the third call. What is the date, Deborah? The voice asked, even more urgently than the last two calls. What is the date? September 19th, Deborah yelled. Are you happy now? It's September 19th. Stop calling me. It's late and I'm about to... Oh, thank goodness, the voice said. So it's not too late. Listen, you need to leave the house now or hide. What? Leave now or find somewhere to hide. The voice was coming in clearer now, and Deborah realized where she'd heard it before. Who is this? She asked softly. It's you, Deborah. It's you. Listen, on September 19th, someone breaks into our house that night and kills us. You need to leave now. Deborah gasped as she dropped the phone. From the living room, she heard the smashing of glass. There is a monster right above me. I am pretending to be asleep so he doesn't notice I'm here, but I think that opportunity is long gone. I think he knows I'm here. I think he's waiting for his opportunity to eat me, or rip me to shreds, or drag me to his cave. His tendrils are flexible and will have no problem grabbing me from any angle. His eyes are adjusting to the dark, so even if I run, he'll be able to see me. I hear his quick breaths, excited for his next kill. He breathes and pants with excitement, ready to spring himself on me and tear me apart. A deafening cry emanates from his mouth as he calls for his other monsters nearby to join in on the fun. This may very well be my last night. Mom? Timmy yelled from his room. Can you come in here? I think there's a monster under my bed. The homeless man leaned against the dumpster on the cold winter night, coughing and sputtering. He could hardly remember the last time he had a warm bed, a hot meal, a place of his own. He shivered and sank low, trying to conserve heat. As the snow slowly stopped falling, he closed his eyes and slept. He was awoken a while later by the sounds of footsteps moving towards him, crunching in the snow. He slowly opened his eyes, and to his horror he saw three faceless creatures, human in form but having no features, wearing white outfits moving towards him on the street. He mustered up as much energy as he could, and he ran the opposite way down the alley. The faceless beings moved at a steady pace toward him, but he was still quicker. He reached the end of the alleyway and looked right, only to see two more. Two more faceless creatures bearing down on him from the back of the alley. He turned the opposite way and ran out of the alley into the street, screaming for help. Five humanoid creatures silently moving in on him. The streets were desolate, empty. 
He estimated it to be around three or four in the morning. He ran down the city street, coughing and yelling for assistance. About a hundred feet in front of him, he glanced up and saw from behind a row of cars four more faceless creatures emerged. He could see them in full form now. They were taller than an average person, about seven feet. Their limbs were longer than average, too. And that face, or lack of one, was the most terrifying part. He tried scrambling out of the way, but there were too many of them now, and they were right on top of him, circling him, reaching out for him. He screamed as they laid their hands on him. But all of a sudden he felt calm. His cough was gone. He closed his eyes and inhaled, his lungs filling up with the cold night air. He opened his eyes. He was sitting in a bed, sunlight streaming through the window. He blinked his eyes and stood up, stretching. From the other room, he smelled food being cooked. Bacon? Eggs? He sighed to himself. What a terrible dream. Two police officers were patrolling early that morning when they spotted what appeared to be a body leaned up against a dumpster in an alleyway off the city street. Upon closer inspection, they discovered it to be a homeless man, apparently frozen to death during the snowstorm the previous evening. Poor guy, said the first officer. Just wanted to find somewhere warm. Maybe he's in a better place now, his partner said. Yeah, right. They started pushing space exploration again after a long time. It started after the technology boom. Processors and controllers were becoming ever smaller. Microelectronics were becoming ever more efficient. It seemed like the perfect time for a technological revamp used for space exploration. After a multitude of tests, tweaks, and calculations, we finally felt we were able to do a live test. Previously, a manned spacecraft would be able to reach the moon in approximately three days' time. With this new tech, the time would be a third of the original time, putting me on the moon in a little over a day. There was a fair bit of risk involved for me, which was explained. I was an experienced astronaut, but I've never been outside of Earth's orbit. Also, in the event something went wrong, it would take a few days to mobilize actual human assistance given how much of the tech was used in creating the spacecraft. However, in 98.9% of the simulations, the takeoff and the landing went smoothly. There were also a load of contingencies built into the aircraft, should something malfunction during travel or landing. As an astronaut, you hope for the best, but plan for the worst, because nothing ever goes exactly to plan, especially when you're dealing with things that are so far out of your control like gravitational pull, the vastness of space, 
and how new technology will react to those harsh environments. The takeoff went fine, and the trip overall went off without a hitch. The problem came with the landing. There was an issue with the software used to control the landing gear. It was a little rougher than it should have been and ended up damaging some major equipment. It was nothing life-threatening, but it does impede my ability to take off back for Earth. They were on top of it, though, and support should arrive in another day or two to assist. That's not what I'm afraid of. No. What I'm afraid of is the knocking I've been hearing outside the spacecraft. Mary arrived home from work, exhausted. After making herself something to eat, running on the treadmill for a bit, and vegging out in front of the television, she decided it was time to get ready for bed. The bathroom filled with fog as the showerhead sprayed nice hot water. It had been particularly cold, so Mary found hot showers like this relaxing. And relaxing moments were hard to come by nowadays. All of a sudden, she heard a voice that sounded like it was coming from the drain. I see you. She gasped. It was soft. Subtle. She even doubted herself whether or not she even heard it. She stopped moving and just let the water run as she tried to listen for it again, but nothing. She continued her shower, just a little more alert than normal. As she was turning off the water to her shower, she heard the voice again. And once again, she could have sworn it was coming from the drain. I see you. She quickly turned the knob to kill the water and let the silence hang for a moment. The only sounds being the dripping water from the shower head. But she didn't hear the voice again. She dried off and put on her pajamas. She went through some emails, checked her Instagram and Twitter feed, and forgot about the voice. As she settled into bed, she leaned over to turn off the lamp on the side table. As she did, she looked down and saw a horrifying face peeking out from under her bed. As the room became engulfed in darkness, right next to her she heard the words, I see you. Mary screamed. My kid told me he found some creepy drawing in our house when he was very young, probably five or six. I remember when he showed it to me. It was just a poorly drawn stick figure type family of four with the words, We live in your walls, scrawled in bad handwriting on the bottom. In typical parent fashion, I didn't believe he found it, and instead settled on the conclusion that he drew it himself. Maybe inspired by some horror movie or show he'd managed to catch a glimpse of. We were a family of four, so that could have been the start of his inspiration. I took the drawing and I put it in the cabinet. A few days later, I was looking for something and stumbled upon the drawing again. And I could have sworn it changed. It was still the family of four, but something was off. The figures were posed in a strange way. They were hunched and drooping. 
Their faces, which I could have sworn were all smiley faces previously, were now all frowning. I only examined it for a moment before I heard my son and daughter calling me from the other room to take them to school. I placed the drawing back in the cabinet and forgot about it. Until the following night. My wife exclaimed, What the heck is this? as she pulled the drawing from the cabinet. Some drawing that Tyler made, I think, I said, somewhat dismissively. Tyler drew this. She held up in front of me. The drawing had changed again. Now it was much more detailed. The family in the drawing looked grotesque and bloody. Their limbs were out of proportion and stretched into physically impossible features. And the background changed, too. Instead of just a plain white background, the drawing now somewhat resembled our living room. It freaked me out, and we moved shortly after that. I still have the drawing, folded up in a box somewhere. I don't want to know what I'll see if I open it up again. Being an Uber driver is tough, especially if you're trying to live off of it. You have to be in your car all the time, ready for any pickup. Some guys do it as supplemental income, and others, believe it or not, do it for fun. I'm trying to live off of it, maybe start my own car service one day. But that means long hours, missing lots of sleep, and doing frequent night pickups into the early morning. I drive a black Nissan Maxima. Reliable car. I don't look too threatening, which helps a bit, especially when I have to pick up women. I have a slim build, brown hair, glasses. Pretty average, like most of my rides. There was this one day in particular when I was unimaginably tired, but I knew I had to keep on going through the night. It was probably around 2.45am on a Saturday morning. And I got a pickup location that was in kind of a remote area of the city. It was a man, and he was alone on a corner. To be honest, the whole vibe kind of creeped me out, but hey, a ride's a ride. His name was John, and he climbed into the back, telling me his phone died. I sort of casually tried asking him what he was doing out so late, and he gave me some generic answer about being at a party. What kind of party was in that part of town? He kept on looking at me with a strange glare in the rearview mirror. I tried averting my eyes so I wouldn't be looking directly at him. Then he started asking me all sorts of odd questions. Questions about me, my personal life, if he'd ever met me before. Hell, he even asked questions about my car. How many Uber drivers have this same model car? How many people I've picked up? Just oddly specific questions that seemed... A little bit like an interrogation. I kept on getting this feeling like something was about to happen, like he was going to jump me or try to rob me or steal my car or worse. The ride finally ended and I dropped him off. No real issues. Still, I'm going to think twice before taking a ride that early in the morning in that part of town. John quickly ran up the stairs into his apartment and plugged in his phone. He scrolled through the news article until he found what he was looking for. Uber driver in black Nissan Maxima falls asleep at the wheel early Friday morning 
and crashes into light pole. No survivors. The driver is being described as being in his mid-thirties, glasses, slim build, and brown hair. John decided next time he'd call Lyft. I have a fear of elevators. It isn't what you think, though. I'm not afraid of them breaking and falling to the bottom, and I'm not afraid of the confined space. I'm not even afraid of heights. I'm afraid of going into an elevator and never coming out. Let me explain. I had this friend, Travis. Nice guy, a little mischievous. We grew up together. We were like brothers. He had a solid frame, a sharp nose and chin, and a birthmark over his left eye. He always joked that it was his tribal tattoo, since he was a quarter Native American. When we were in our 20s, Travis lived in this old run-down apartment complex that contained an equally run-down elevator. One night we were out drinking, and I decided to just crash at his place since it was closer to town. We got a little too wasted. I ended up falling asleep on the couch in the lobby of the building, and he went into the elevator to go up to his apartment, because he, as he described it back then, had to yak. But I never saw him again. He never made it to his apartment. I don't even believe he made it out of the elevator. They launched an investigation into his disappearance. I was questioned, but I understood why. I was the last one to see him. The last blurry image of him I remember were the doors closing behind him in that elevator. There were never any conclusive answers as to what happened. That was a little over a year ago, and I've had a fear of elevators ever since. I saw something the other day, though, that made me pause. It was something I couldn't explain, and maybe I don't want to. It was a couple with a baby. A baby with sharp features and a birthmark over his left eye. Ella lived alone. She was a talented piano player who frequently performed in front of large audiences. When she was by herself, however, she would often just play and play to relax and wind down. She had recently purchased a vintage piano from an auction and had it tuned and refinished. It looked lovely in her home. She sat down to play, her fingers almost floating above the keys. She closed her eyes, and the music filled the air. After a few moments, she paused to take a break and lifted her fingers off the keys. From the other room, she thought she heard the faint sound of clapping. She quickly got up and went to the other room and turned on the light. Nothing. Assuming she was simply hearing things, 
Maybe her brain was so wired to hear clapping after a performance that her ears were playing tricks. She sat back down to play. Once again, she paused. And once again, she heard clapping, this time closer, as if it was coming from the opposite side of the room. Her curiosity was getting the better of her. She turned around, played part of a piece, and then abruptly stopped. She let the silence hang for a moment, listening. But this time, no clapping. She exhaled with relief. Suddenly, from directly behind her, she heard a deep, unnatural voice. Bravo. She turned around and screamed. I found a hard drive the other day. It was fairly small, but according to the label, it had 50 terabytes. Seemed almost impossible. It was smaller than my phone, and there were a bunch of connector ports on the side, some of which I didn't recognize. But there was one port that looked like it would fit with a cable that I had, so, out of curiosity, I plugged it into my computer. I shooed my cat off the keyboard and started examining the contents of the hard drive. It was a humongous archive. There were folders from 1 all the way up to 5,000. It was overwhelming. I didn't even know which one to click on first. I randomly clicked on one and it looked like it was filled with some form of PDF file that I've never seen before. My PDF reader was able to open it though, and it was a news article about the destruction of the Hindenburg. Odd. But it didn't look like... Well, it wasn't formatted like an old news article. It looked modern, or maybe even futuristic. Another folder contained an article documenting the destruction of Pompeii in the same futuristic format. Very odd. All of a sudden it clicked. The folder numbers corresponded to years. I clicked through the 2000s and every major tragedy and natural disaster was documented in the same format. The date, the time, number of casualties, everything. I clicked the current year. Same thing. Everything documented and recorded meticulously. And then I noticed there were articles dated ahead of the current day. Articles from the future. I clicked through them. A bridge collapse. A tsunami. A volcanic eruption. I clicked through the other folders. Years and years worth of information on every worldwide disaster and tragedy. I sat back in disbelief. This could be used to save millions of lives, prevent countless deaths. I knew I had to copy the information. I would store as much as I could on my computer and then find a way to get this information out there. I highlighted the folders. And at that second, my cat jumped onto the keyboard, his paw landing squarely on the delete key. I sat there in disbelief, staring at my 50 terabyte hard drive, which now contained zero files. The bookstore was old and in a quiet part of town.
Their books were mostly dated and worn. It was remarkable that this place was even still in business. Kenzie walked into the bookstore, eyes wide. She was an avid reader, and she had wanted to visit this bookstore for quite some time. A man poked his head from behind some shelves in the back. Oh, hello. It was the owner. He sounded genuinely shocked to have a customer. Kenzie gave him a small wave. Hey there. Quite an impressive assortment of books you have here. Kenzie began making her way to the back of the store towards the man. She was young. She looked to be in her early twenties, perhaps. Her eyes scanning the countless rows of books, most of them covered in dust. As she walked towards the back of the store, she periodically would glance at a book, wiping the dust off the spine so she could read the title. Gotta be honest, the owner said. We don't get many customers nowadays. He looked at her more closely. And it's definitely a shock to see a young person like yourself interested in these old books. He extended his hand. Charlie Cooper. Kenzie smiled and shook his hand. Kenzie Davis. Okay then, Miss Davis, what kind of book are you looking for today? Kenzie thought for a moment. A scary book. Okay. Are you talking more goosebumps or scary stories to tell in the dark? No, no, something truly terrifying. Something that gets into your head. Charlie thought for a moment. Afraid we don't really have anything like that. Kenzie sighed. Oh, well, that's a shame. Books nowadays are simply so bland. They lack any sort of... tension. Or history. I'd be willing to pay a substantial price for a book of that nature. Charlie studied her again. Well, I might have something, but it's... a collectible. Very old, very valuable, and part of a much larger collection. It's also very expensive. If you're serious, I could show it to you. Kenzie nodded, and Charlie led her to a back room away from the main store area. This room contained one bookshelf, of only a few books. He grabbed a rather large book, bound in weathered leather. He handed it to her. She grasped the book in both of her hands, running her fingers over the cover. The title was engraved in the leather, in very simple lettering. The Book of Horrors. She flipped it over. Nothing on the back. She opened it up. It was very well worn. The pages were made of thick paper and were discolored from time and use. Nothing was written on the inside cover or the first page. The page after that had an inscription written in cursive. For M.D., my rosebud. She shut the book quickly and looked up at Charlie. So, what makes it scary? This book doesn't just have one author, it has many. Collections of stories from people all around the world, all across time and space. Radio stations turning men into monsters. Houses that devour people whole. Faceless men, creatures flying in the clouds. Elevators that are time machines, haunted Ubers. 
and rumor has it that they're all true. Kenzie flipped to one of the pages and began to read the stories. I was creating a slideshow for my grandfather's funeral. He passed away recently. He was in his 80s, and he lived a good life. A lot of the pictures were obviously old, so for many of them I had to scan them in so I could edit them on my computer. It was nice looking at the pictures, the memories. I came across a picture of him and my grandmother in the same month that she passed away. It was a nice picture of them at the restaurant. I noticed, though, that in the background there was a man who was looking at the camera. His face was obscured and he was all in black. I realized something and went back to a picture I saw earlier, one of the whole family taken just a few weeks ago at the public park. I scanned the background until I found him. Seemingly the same man, dressed all in black. My curiosity peaked, I dug up some more old photos of my uncle who had passed away a few years ago. I combed through any photos taken near the time of his death. I searched and searched, and I finally found him. It was a picture of him at the hospital. In the background, through a window of his room, I saw the same man in black staring at the camera. I've seen unexplainable things happen in my own life, and concluded that this man in black is some harbinger of death. I relay this now because at the funeral, as I was talking to and being comforted by family and friends, I glanced up for a second, and in the very back of the room was the man in black. I suppose that is creepy, especially if it's true. Which, for the record, I don't believe. Well, I have no way to personally confirm if they are or not, he shrugged. She opened to another story. His daughter burst through the door in hysterics. Dad! Dad! He knew she would be panicking. He moved towards the front door to greet her. She fell into his arms, sobbing. It's okay, sweetie, he said softly. What happened? she exclaimed between sobs. Two men broke in. They were looking for something. They trashed the place, found it, and left. He held his daughter in his arms. Slowly, her breathing started to calm. Okay, she said, regaining her composure. We'll call the police and have them come down here. Maybe one of the security cameras caught something. She loosened herself from his arms and began making her way to the living room. How bad is the damage and everything? He caught up to her and held her. Wait. Before you go in there, I just want you to know how much I love you. He hugged her and kissed her on her forehead. You'll always be my rosebud. Your mother would be proud of what you've become. She hugged him back, slightly puzzled. Okay, Dad, love you too. Now let's see if we can figure out what's missing so we can... 
she opened the door and froze. On the floor of the living room was her father's body, with what appeared to be a gunshot wound in his chest. The rest of the room was completely trashed. She whirled around quickly, looking for her father, who had just been with her moments ago, but he was gone. Only the lifeless body in front of her remained. Kenzie closed the book and quickly wiped her eye. Well, maybe some stories in the book are true after all. I don't remember that story being in there, Charlie said, confused. I'll take it. The book. Great. Like I said, it isn't cheap, but well worth the price. Kenzie pulled a pistol out of her purse and pointed it at Charlie. I don't think you understand. I'll take it, because it's mine. Hey, I don't know who you think you are. Kenzie held the book open to the inscription. My name is Mackenzie Davis. You and your partner broke into my father's home, shot him, and stole this book. I'm taking it back. Look, Charlie begged. No one was supposed to get hurt. We were just hired to... Charlie writhed on the floor, a pool of blood forming around him. Mackenzie walked up to his shivering body. Now I'm going to leave you here, just like you left my father. You should bleed out quickly. Your partner wasn't so lucky. She quietly exited the room and jammed the door closed. She took out a small bottle filled with gasoline, and as she walked towards the door began dowsing the books and bookshelves. She placed the book in her purse and lit up a cigarette, taking one long drag. Still red with heat, she flicked it towards one of the bookshelves, causing it to erupt into flames upon impact as she exited the bookstore.